Well, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of August 21st from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And I have to begin by saying that, uh, you know, once again, vindication can be very tedious because uh, on my uh, podcast of July 29th, I went out on a limb and made the prediction that Kabul was going to fall to the Taliban on September 11th. And I was really hoping that uh, I was being too pessimistic. It turned out that I was actually too optimistic. And of course, Kabul fell to the Taliban on August 16th. And unfortunately, the big question which is now faced by the people of Afghanistan is how significant a step backwards is this going to be? And what are the odds for launching some kind of meaningful resistance? And these issues are particularly critical for women, that half of the population whose fundamental rights could be dramatically overturned in the weeks to come, and the Hazara, the Shiite ethnic minority of the central mountains of Afghanistan, the Hindu Kush, who were actually subject to genocide at the hands of the Taliban the last time they were in power, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. In addition to the very grim implications for human rights with the Taliban takeover, there's been a virtual paralysis in basic public services throughout the country, and aid agencies are warning that a humanitarian disaster may be imminent. And the fact that the United States, after 20 years in Afghanistan, is leaving the country in this condition is both disgraceful and perfectly predictable. The U.S. went into Afghanistan not for the good of the Afghan people, no matter what rhetoric about freedom was employed by the neocons at the time, but for its own imperial interests. And similarly, it is leaving now, as is quite evident, for its own perceived political interests. Certainly not for the good of the Afghan people. Biden's speech of August 16th, blaming the Afghans for this situation, was utterly shameful, taking no responsibility at all, but saying, quote, American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. And then going on for several paragraphs, whining about how ungrateful the Afghans were for all the support they received from the United States. Now, this is ugly in the extreme. You do not get to invade a country, topple its government, oversee the installation of a new one, spend 20 years with a military presence in that country, conniving with corrupt warlords, and then blame the people of that country when the whole thing collapses. So, shame on you, Biden. But it also has to be said, of course, that the Republicans attempting to make hay out of this situation and score propaganda points against Biden is equally shameful. And the current disaster in Afghanistan is the bitter fruit of Trump's shameful peace deal, as it was called in rather Orwellian manner, with the Taliban, which I want to emphasize I opposed from the start. 
which is a matter of record, you can check out what I wrote about it at the time on countervortex.org. But I'm going to do a little bit of reading from what I just blogged this week with some basic information about the anatomy of the Taliban and the uh, incipient resistance forces. And as we shall see, I uh, have to add that um, Obama also set a precedent for the betrayal that we now witness in Afghanistan. All right, so who exactly is coming to power here? On August 18th, a delegation of Taliban leaders led by Sirajuddin Haqqani met in Kabul with former President Hamid Karzai, the one who was essentially put in power by the United States in 2001, and uh, the head of the High Council for National Reconciliation, Abdullah Abdullah who was the uh, bitter rival of the president who fled the country as the Taliban advanced on Kabul, Ashraf Ghani. So two figures from the uh, old regime who appear to be acquiescing in a power transfer to the Taliban. The Taliban's most visible leader, Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar, has reportedly flown in from Qatar to Kandahar, the city which is the uh, Taliban's significant base of support, in Afghanistan South, and is expected to arrive shortly in Kabul, if he's not already done so. While Haibatullah Akunzada is the Taliban's official leader, the successor to the founder of the movement, Mullah Muhammad Omar, late founder of the movement, uh, Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar is the effective political chief of the Taliban a veteran of the Mujahideen War against the Soviets in the 1980s. It was Baradar who really established Kandahar as the Taliban support base in the 90s, together with his reported brother-in-law, the organization's late first leader, Mullah Omar. After the U.S. invasion of 2001, he helped direct the Taliban insurgency from exile in Pakistan. The CIA tracked him down to Karachi, the Pakistani port city, in 2010. And in February of that year, the U.S. persuaded Pakistani authorities to arrest him. However, he was freed in 2018 at the behest of Washington. Donald Trump's Afghan envoy, Zalmay Khalilzad, asked the Pakistanis to release him so he could lead the negotiations in Qatar. In February 2020, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo met with Baradar at the conference where Khalilzad and the Mullah signed the Doha Agreement, ostensibly ending the U.S. war against the Taliban. Okay, and I remember I just said that Obama also uh, sort of set a precedent for this. If you go to the website Hazara.net, a website that advocates for the Hazara people who were still bitterly persecuted in Afghanistan and Pakistan alike, facing intermittent you know, terrorist attacks and massacres, and were actually targeted for genocide when the Taliban was in power last. All right, they have a, a statement on their front page, this website, Hazara.net, which is advocating for the Hazara people, uh, protesting that... Um, the Hazara people were put at risk by the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners by the Afghan authorities last year, which the U.S. signed off on as a part of the Doha Agreement. Uh, that was the doing of Donald Trump. But uh, 
The statement also bitterly recalls the release of the so-called Gitmo 5 in 2014 under Obama. Taliban leaders who were uh, being held in Guantanamo Bay and uh, were flown to Qatar in exchange for captured U.S. Army soldier Sergeant Bowie Bergdahl. Remember that affair? And Hazara.net writes that these included figures who were involved in massacres of peaceful Hazaras. Particularly, I was able to glean from uh, media accounts in India, a piece in the Hindustan Times, uh, the personality in question appears to be Mohammed Fazi, who, according to human rights groups, quote, presided over the mass killing of Shiite Muslims in Afghanistan in 2000 and 2001, end quote. All right, now, uh, we all, of course, still want the prison camp at Guantanamo Bay to close. It remains open, let's recall that. We're all aware that the Guantanamo prison camp itself was the scene of pretty horrific human rights abuses over the past 20 years, and the plenty of um, innocent people just got swept up in the aftermath of 9-11 and wound up at Guantanamo. However, uh, no matter what the you know dubious legal nature of the detentions at Guantanamo may be, it's also clear that there were some real baddies there. And I would submit that Mohammed Fazi, rather than being turned over to Qatar to rejoin the Taliban leadership, should have been turned over to The Hague to face international war crimes charges or genocide charges. And instead, he is among the leadership which is now seizing control in Afghanistan yet again. So, you know, <clears throat> over the past couple of years, the so-called peace process with the Taliban was underway, a lot of anti-war types have been cheering it. I was not among them. It was clear that this was a cynical and imperialist peace. No less than the war against the Taliban had been a cynical imperialist war. And it had to do with, uh, you know, the U.S. need for some kind of minimally face-saving exit from Afghanistan, which it has demonstrably failed to achieve in any case, and nothing to do with the interest of the Afghan people. And in fact, the Afghan government was excluded from the talks. It was talks between the Taliban and, and uh, the, the world's greatest imperial power, the United States. The so-called representatives of the Afghan people were excluded from the talks. You know, there were provisions that there were supposed to be intra-Afghan talks after the Doha agreement, after the U.S. cut its deal with the Taliban. And of course, that never really came to pass. So while all of the peaceniks were cheering this cynical connivance with war criminals that they called peace, I was remembering the famous anarcho-surrealist slogan, neither your war nor your peace. All right, now let's take a look at the uh, anatomy of the resistance forces which are um, coming together. I wrote on August 18th, this past Wednesday, the first vice president of Afghanistan, under the government just ousted from Kabul by the Taliban, Amrullah Saleh, has taken refuge in the Panjshir Valley, north of the capital, and declared himself to be the country's legitimate president. Citing the Constitution, he said that in the event of incapacitation, 
resignation or death of the president, the first vice president becomes caretaker president. And of course, just a few days before that, President Ashraf Ghani fled the country as the Taliban advanced on Kabul. Quote, I am currently inside my country and am the legitimate caretaker president. I am reaching out to all leaders to secure their support and consensus. End quote, Saleh said in a statement. Defense Minister Bismila Mahamadi has reportedly joined Saleh in the Panjshir Valley, as has Ahmad Masood, who is the son, local politician who is the son of the martyred resistance commander Ahmad Shah Masood. Many ethnic Tajiks in the Afghan army are said to have arrived with their equipment, including armored vehicles and tanks after withdrawing from the nearby front line. And ethnic Hazara families have reportedly walked 200 kilometers to reach the valley, fearing persecution as the Taliban seize their homeland in Bamiyan province. And I should point out that the Panjshir Valley is uh, mostly within Panjshir province, which is the one province of Afghanistan where the provincial capital, Bazarak, has not been taken by the Taliban. So it could become a critical focus of resistance, as it has been over much of the two generations that Afghanistan has been at war. Okay, so uh, a little bit about uh, the self-declared caretaker president in the Panjir Valley, Amrullah Saleh. He is the former head of the National Security Directorate, that is to say the secret police, and an implacable opponent of the Taliban. He's been the target of numerous assassination attempts. Of Tajik background, he was born in the Panjshir Valley. In the rugged Hindu Kush range north of Kabul, the Panjshir Valley has rarely been under the real control of any central government in the 40 years that Afghanistan has been at war. Ahmad Shah Massoud, the martyred resistance leader, was also born in the valley and waged an insurgency there first against the Soviets back in the 1980s, and then against the Taliban in the 90s and early 2000s. He was assassinated, famously, days before 9-11, which is almost certainly not coincidental, and he has since been uh, venerated in a posthumous personality cult. And his son, who seems to be a local politician or warlord in Panjshir, has also declared himself now to be... uh, in resistance in the Panjshir Valley against the new Taliban regime. Now, I should point out that, you know, there's an obvious ethnic dimension to the conflict, with the Pashtun people of the South being the primary support base for the Taliban, whereas it was the uh, Tajiks and Uzbeks in the North who supported the, uh, the Northern Alliance, which was the armed resistance movement against the Taliban, which was led by Ahmad Shah Massoud, and uh, became the, the colonel of the, of the new post-Taliban government after the U.S. invasion of 20, 2001. So uh, while I'm heartened by the emergence or survival of some, uh, you know, colonel of resistance to the Taliban, I'm certainly, uh, I certainly have very uh, <clears throat> grave misgivings about the leadership, and I'm certainly very much aware of the uh, potential for ethnic war in Afghanistan. 
I feel like I should refrain from making any more grim predictions unless I face more grim vindication. I should also point out, this is a really dystopian scenario, but uh, the Taliban can also face an internal insurgency from Islamist forces even more extremist than they are. The so-called Islamic State, or ISIS, has established a franchise in Afghanistan, and it seems like it might have been the Islamic State Khorasan province, as they are calling themselves, which uh, may have been behind the, um, the May 8th bomb attack on a girl's school in a Hazara neighborhood of Kabul, which killed 50 people, most of them Hazara schoolgirls. And the uh, ISIS Khorasan province has been, uh, you know, portraying the Taliban as uh, <laughs> too soft and corrupt, particularly making hay of the fact that the Taliban have been funding themselves with the dope trade in Afghanistan, opium and hashish. And this ISIS franchise has actually taken to, um, within the areas that it's active, burning the opium and cannabis fields carrying out its own eradication campaigns, much as the Taliban itself had done when it was in power in the 90s. You can read my uh, story about this if you're interested. What Taliban rule means for Afghanistan's drug trade, which appeared on the website of Cannabis Now magazine, CannabisNow.com, on August 17th. So, unfortunately, there is uh, the potential for a three-way war in Afghanistan now between the Taliban, the resistance in the Panjir Valley, and ISIS. Now let's uh, pull back a little bit for uh, the international context for all of this. It's very interesting that while the U.S. has abandoned its embassy in Kabul, China, Russia, Pakistan, and Iran have all come to some kind of, uh, you know, arrangement with, uh, with the Taliban, allowing them to keep their embassies open, and seem to be broaching, at the very least, recognition of the uh, consolidating Taliban regime. And in fact, in late July, a delegation of Taliban leaders, including the notorious Mullah Baradar, were hosted in the Chinese port city of Tianjin, by the Chinese leadership, and actually met with Beijing's foreign minister, Wang Yi. So uh, China has been very blatant in attempting to come to some kind of accommodation with the Taliban. I'm going to be uh, slightly predictable and just mention the uh, <coughs> inevitable pipeline angle. There's been all of this talk about a, uh, you know, plans for a an oil pipeline across Afghanistan to bring Central Asian hydrocarbons to market as having been a, a motivator behind the U.S. intervention. There was certainly a lot of talk to this effect back in 2001. And when the Taliban had been in power before that, there had actually been meetings between the Taliban leadership and uh, the executives of the U.S. oil company Unical to uh, discuss a, a pipeline through their territory. This is fact, not speculation. And it's also fact, not speculation, that... Um, after the fall of the Taliban, there was a pipeline project that was launched across Afghanistan with the backing of the Western powers, the so-called TAPI project, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline. Again, to bring oil from the uh, Caspian Basin in Central Asia to Karachi and the ports of uh, Pakistan and India. 
and the Chinese leadership have actually been broaching, as the Tapi project has advanced, which has been very slowly, of course, due to the instability, the Chinese leadership has actually broached their own pipeline across Afghanistan, the so-called Turkmenistan to China pipeline. So uh, Beijing might well be viewing this as uh, an opportunity to uh, deal a blow to the Tapi and to proceed at some point to some degree of stability can be won with the uh, Turkmenistan to China pipeline. Now, amazingly, this is all happening as China is rounding up seemingly millions of Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang in concentration camps in the supposed interest of combating Islamist militancy. So this cozying up between Beijing and the Taliban I mean, just uh, represents dizzying cynicism on both sides. Beijing being willing to, uh, you know, <clears throat> groom Islamist militants in Afghanistan, a country with which it shares a border, just a little sliver of a border, but nonetheless shares a border at the same time that it's imposing just across that border in Xinjiang, it's imposing this totalizing police state and, you know, mass internment of the population in the name of fighting Islamist militancy. And uh, the Taliban displaying equal cynicism in their willingness to, uh, you know, betray their Muslim brethren in Xinjiang by cozying up to Beijing. And, uh, you know, here we have to contrast the situation after 9-11, where China actually supported the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. And as a um, seeming quid pro quo for this support, the U.S. State Department placed uh, the supposed Uyghur terrorist group, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, or ETIM, on its list of uh, terrorist organizations. It has since been removed, as the U.S. and China have fallen out in recent years and emerged as unequivocal imperial rivals. It should be pointed out that it's rather questionable whether the ETIM actually exists in any real organized sense. Similarly, when the Taliban was in power in the, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, Russia was supporting the Northern Alliance, the armed resistance against the Taliban, and fearing an extension of Islamist militancy into the former Soviet republics of Central Asia, which Moscow considers to be its near abroad, as they call it, its backyard, so to speak. Now we may witness a, um, a flip in which, uh, you know, the um, pieces on the chessboard are rearranged. A flip in, you know, which power is backing which local player. And China and Russia may be, you know, grooming the Taliban to try to, uh, you know, establish Afghanistan as a state within their sphere of influence. Not that China and Russia don't have their own tensions with each other, which of course they do. And the U.S. could start backing armed resistance against the Taliban, if in fact it emerges, as seems likely. And Afghanistan could be drawn once again, as it has so many times over the centuries, into the so-called great game. And all of this is contingent, actually, certainly Russia's and China's apparent attempts to groom the Taliban, are contingent on, uh, you know, to what degree all of the talk that we're hearing about how it's a new Taliban, it's Taliban 2.0, and they changed, and they aren't, you know, the, uh, the yahoos that they were back uh, the last time they were in power. To what extent did they become 
pragmatists, or cynics as I prefer to say, <clears throat> and to what extent do they remain zealots? And probably their own ranks are divided. There's probably more pragmatists in the leadership and more zealots among the foot soldiers. Just a guess. But a guess based on the uh, you know reading of events where the leadership keep making all of these uh, conciliatory proclamations as actual human rights abuses are committed on the ground. And from the perspective of, uh, you know, what is going to be the lot of the Afghan people now, I mean, it would be better if the Taliban have in fact become cynics. In the uh, memorable words of C.S. Lewis, it's better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. So maybe the Taliban, after 20 years out of power, getting their hands dirty with the drug trade and ensconced in the corridors of power in Doha, Qatar, maybe they've become robber barons of a type not too different from the warlords that the U.S. has been backing in Afghanistan for all these years. And in that case, maybe, you know, the situation for the freedom of the Afghans, it will be a, uh, a step backwards without a doubt. But maybe not too dramatic a step backwards compared to uh, if the zealots prevail. But it also means that that would be more likely, the cynics prevailing or the pragmatists, would make it more likely that Afghanistan will be drawn into the great game with the Taliban cultivated by Russia and China and the internal resistance backed by the West. Or if the zealots prevail, it could be much worse for the people of Afghanistan and also more likely that eventually there will be yet another intervention by one world power or another to oust the Taliban. Now, Russia had its chance <laughs> back in the 1980s, and then the U.S. had its chance beginning 20 years ago. Maybe next time it'll be China. I sure hope not, because in that case, Afghanistan could join Syria and Ukraine as another likely flashpoint for great power confrontation that could escalate to the unthinkable, if you get my drift. So, in terms of what we should be demanding now, we progressives in the West, well, apropos of what I was just ranting about, we should be demanding all great powers hands off Afghanistan. And critically, we should be giving whatever, encouragement and solidarity that we can to the resistance on the ground against Taliban rule. Now, whatever misgivings I have about the leadership of the incipient resistance in the Panjir Valley and about the potential for it being groomed by the West in a proxy war, just as the Taliban could be groomed by Russia and China in a proxy war, I'm nonetheless heartened that there remains one part of the country which is not under Taliban control. However, I'm much more interested in what are the prospects for civil resistance, resistance at the local level by Afghanistan civil society. And I have also been extremely heartened by the protests against Taliban rule, which have taken place in Kabul, in Jalalabad, in Khost, in Asadabad, and have, of course, met with deadly repression. So, I want to hear more about that. First and foremost, I want to give kudos to the journalists and human rights groups 
that have over the course of uh, the past days now that the Taliban has been consolidating power attempted to stay in touch with civil society groups on the ground in Afghanistan and give them a voice. I, uh, for instance, commend National Public Radio for their story of August 17th. She is staying in Afghanistan to ensure women's gains aren't lost under Taliban rule. An interview with Mabuba Saraj, founder of the Afghan Women's Network. We need more of this kind of journalism, urgently. And also to the, uh, the media outlets within Afghanistan, which for the moment are continuing to publish. I particularly want to point out Kama Press News Agency, that's K-H-A-A-M-A, based in Kabul, which for the past many years has been doing really excellent basic news reportage about events within Afghanistan, an independent voice which is needed more than ever. And I am very heartened that they are continuing to update their website multiple times daily. I hope that they continue to be able to function. And it's very important that we loan them any support that we can. I would like to know where is Rawa, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, an openly secularist and feminist resistance movement, civil resistance organization, which back when the Taliban were in power the last time around, in addition to organizing in the uh, Afghan refugee camps in Pakistan, were also actually organizing underground schools where girls could receive an education and underground parallel structures of civil society. And for several years after the Taliban were toppled, continued to be a very strong voice against the Taliban, against the fundamentalists of any stripe, against the warlords, the veteran Mujahideen warlords who were, and Northern Alliance warlords who were essentially being reinstalled in power under U.S. auspices, and against all of the great power meddling, principally at that time, the United States, in Afghanistan. They've been remarkably quiet during the recent horrific events. I'm going to continue to monitor their website. I hope that they reemerge. We need their voice more than ever. If anybody has a line to Rawa, the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, please be in touch with the counter vortex. We are going to uh, continue to watch events in Afghanistan very, very closely. We will be back to uh, revisit this question soon. We do a podcast once a week here at the Counter Vortex, usually on the weekend, and we update the website's daily report, daily, without fail. Check us out online at countervortex.org. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. If you appreciate our work, please support us on Patreon. We ask only $1 per podcast minimum. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.